presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Every pediatrician has experienced it, a difficult encounter with a family. Complicated social factors can add up and result in a less than ideal experience for the patient and the clinician. How can the clinician be prepared so that such encounters might either be salvaged or at least rectified as much as possible? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from New Haven, Connecticut, is my guest, Dr. Andrea Asnes. Dr. Asnes is a pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. She is the author of the recent article in Pediatrics in Review entitled, The Difficult Pediatric Encounter, Insights and Strategies for the Pediatric Practitioner. Welcome, Dr. Asnes. Thank you. Dr. Asnes, what inspired you to write this piece? Well, I found myself in a position as a clinician teacher, really working with residents in pediatrics about how to talk to patients, especially when things are not going well. I really learned this as a social work student before I went to medical school, and it's sort of a way to look back at what's been said and think about how to say things in a very specific way to ameliorate a situation that's becoming tense or uncomfortable or just not going the way that the practitioner would like it to go. And I found myself giving a lot of very specific advice, as in try saying this or how would it sound if you said something like that, and it was quite effective. So I decided to write it up. So there's a need in your own experience in working with your students. Absolutely. What I'd like to do is take a look at some of the scenarios presented in your article and hear your advice for pediatricians. That sounds great. Here's a parent who challenges the clinician's advice. A father brings his six-year-old daughter to your community health clinic for follow-up of severe eczema. She has been treated with topical corticosteroids, emollients, and unscented and hypoallergenic cleansers. She returns with a flare of her eczema despite the multitude of therapies used in the past. Her father informs you that he refuses to put another drop of steroids on his daughter. He says, I read that they can cause growth problems. I don't want my daughter to be small. I took her to see a naturopathic doctor who promises she has a natural herbal regimen that will work and won't affect her hormones. We've tried your way, and it doesn't help. How would you respond to a patient like that? Well, I think it's important to take a moment before saying anything in this situation. It can feel very threatening and really almost as though the patient and parent in the situation is ungrateful when they say to you, your way isn't working and we're trying something else. I think that I would pause to remind myself that even though they're questioning the treatment that I prescribed, here they are. They've come back to tell me so. They haven't left my care and they've offered me an opportunity to stay involved. So I often give this advice, but I think the next response is to ask more questions and not to respond immediately to what the father in this scenario has said. I would like to hear the practitioner in this situation ask a question like, what has been the hardest part of caring for your daughter's eczema, or what is it about her eczema that's most challenging for you? I think that the information that follows a question like that is really going to lead to the true root of the problem. It's not that the people in your office really don't trust you or respect you. I think if that were the case, they wouldn't have come back at all. But clearly there's something going on, and we need to find out more before we can effectively address it. It also sounds like you're advising clinicians that they must be open, that this is a collaboration, and 
the style of the information that is brought to you, if it's brought in kind of a hostile manner, that's not of consequence. It's that you have to, to maintain the collaboration. Absolutely. And once that's challenged or threatened, certainly bad outcomes can result. I think that it's, it's, it's hard. There are two things being presented here. One is sort of emotional, and it's this sense that the trust is gone or they're questioning your good judgment and what you know to be good effective treatment and management of a common clinical problem. And then there's actually something else underneath it. And it's important to separate those two things out and respond to the actual problem rather than respond emotionally to a parent saying, I don't trust what you've told me or I don't like what you've told me, which can make us feel very defensive. But the partnership is the most important thing in the room. And I think once that's sacrificed, it's very hard to recover it. So the provider in this case must say, let me understand where this frustration is coming from. Tell me more and let me see if I can help. It would seem that some clinicians would be better at this than others, just depending on their social skills, their level of confidence in their ability, just, you know, their own personalities, that this is this is going to be easier for some than others. Undoubtedly true. But I will tell you that I've learned actually from teaching students in simulated patient situations that it's possible really to do a do-over in these situations. And even those people who have an immediate response of, you know, what do you mean you're not trusting me? Or this is the way I learned to do this. Or, you know, the guidelines for treatment of this illness suggest this. Even when those words come out of their mouths first in a sort of defensive posture, they can pause and say, you know, I realize that's not what you're asking me. And what you're really telling me is that there's a problem here. And I'd like to go back and hear from you what that problem is. So even if the immediate response isn't one of questioning and supportive stance for the family who's been challenging in this way, even a second chance at that is possible. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Andrea Asnes, pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. We are discussing the difficult pediatric encounter and some examples from Dr. Asnes's article in Pediatrics in Review. Here is another example. And in this example, the clinician faces the challenge of encountering a family with an adolescent already steeped in conflict. A 15-year-old boy and his mother sit in an examination room awaiting your entrance. As you grasp the doorknob, you glance at the chart and read the chief complaint, quote, mother concerned about child's behavior. You enter the room to find the mother looking anxious and the boy looking disgusted. His arms are crossed in front of his body, and he studiously avoids making eye contact with you. His mother greets you and says, Doctor, I so hope you can do something with him. I'm at the end of my rope. The boy glares at his mother and then resumes an angry stare at the floor. This is not what pediatricians enjoy bumping into. Well, there's an adult in the room and a near adult in the room, and they have different agendas. And adolescent patients can frequently be brought in in, against their will, so to speak, by parents whose concerns the adolescent may not recognize or may, in fact, deny altogether. So this is a challenging one. But the clinician in this setting has an obligation to both parties. And I think the best way to address this kind of setup is to give each person ample time to be heard and preferably in private. We're certainly taught that it's okay to ask parents to leave the room when we ask social and behavioral histories from adolescent patients, and I think that's the standard of care. It's similarly okay to ask adolescent patients to wait outside while we hear in private from their parents about what the concern is that they've been brought in about. 
And it's important to leave time to really hear in full what this parent may be concerned about. In my experience, these concerns for adolescents who are evaluated when their parents want them to be and they don't want to be, the list can include things like poor school performance or defiant or rebellious behavior, if the parent's concerned about drug or alcohol use. And sometimes there are health issues that the parent is concerned about that the child doesn't recognize. Perhaps the child's losing weight or there's a symptom that the parent noticed that the child is minimizing. But it's important first to hear from the parent exactly what the concern is. And also, I take that opportunity to hear if there have been any other global changes in the family, any family constellation changes or anything else that might have led to a shift in sort of the balance the family usually achieves. It's also important to talk to the adolescent in this situation by himself or herself. In this case, it's a boy. I stole this from my father-in-law, who's a pediatrician with many years of experience, but when he enters the room with an adolescent, who he knows doesn't want to be there, he'll say something like, tell me the top three places or things that you'd rather be doing than being in my office right now. And it's kind of hokey, and it may not lead to the adolescent mentioning three things, but I think what the adolescent hears in that is that the practitioner knows that the adolescent doesn't want to be there. And even that can ease the tension in the room a little bit. At least we get it, that they don't want to be there of their own accord. And it may break the ice and allow the adolescent to at least share his or her perspective on why they've been brought in by their parent. And I like the way, you know, you're talking about three adults, one almost adult, really, in the room. So you've got the relationship with the parent, but forging a new kind of relationship with this budding adult is so important. Very important. And I think the quality that will underlie a successful establishment of such a relationship is respect. I think talking down to an adolescent is certainly going to limit a successful relationship very much, but really speaking to that person who is becoming an adult with respect and with a desire to really hear their point of view will lead to not only more information that can be helpful in understanding a problem, but sets the groundwork for a successful relationship as a child transitions into adulthood. What do you advise about confidentiality issues with the adolescent patient? You know, once you get that child in the room alone and they start disclosing things, do you approach confidentiality with them ahead of time and let them know what can and cannot be kept confidential? I do like to do that. I do like to remind adolescents that I have their health and safety as my primary concerns and that I would be unable to keep from their parents anything that I felt could compromise their health or safety. Um, Certainly, I don't like to keep any secrets between adults and children, although I know that special circumstances come up. I usually make it my goal to have open communication between parent and child, and I tell adolescents that I'll work to make that happen. But I also respect that I am the provider to those adolescents and that they may need to tell me something in confidence. But I always accept that with the caveat that I won't keep anything to myself that I think could bring them to harm. Would you talk to them about what you may be sharing with parents? I think I often do not. I often leave it somewhat open-ended, and that may be my own personal style. Because certainly we all know the list of things. If if an adolescent said they were going to kill themselves or if they were otherwise jeopardizing their immediate physical safety, that's obvious. But there are other things that I would like to share with parents, and I really leave it vague on purpose. Because if, if an adolescent tells me about a behavior that's risky or a lifestyle choice that I think is maybe going to compromise them, I don't want to promise them that I won't share it with their parent, but I will promise them that I'll do it in the most respectful way 
for their privacy as possible and only with a mind toward helping them ultimately. Even behaviors that aren't dramatic but are obviously a problem at home that need to be talked about openly need to be up for discussion. I think so. And I I can also and often do offer myself as an advocate for the adolescent in that situation. I I tell them I'm not going to share this with your parent and walk away. I'm going to be there to help you and help your parent to understand you know, why I'm telling this, them this and how you may have gotten into the situation, and I'm going to be there with you through this entire dialogue and also hopefully to establishing a more healthy and safe lifestyle. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Andrea Asnes, pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. Thank you for the interesting conversation, Dr. Asnes. It was a pleasure. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.